0: The following is a rebroadcast
1: of Studio Tulsa. This program first aired last year. Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. According to the National Association for Mental Illness, more than one in five Americans will experience a diagnosable mental illness every year, a number that's slowly climbing. While the highest incidences occur with the most common afflictions, depression and anxiety, more Americans are being diagnosed with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, perhaps due to the COVID pandemic, but also the adulteration of drugs like fentanyl and methamphetamine that have deleterious effects on users. My guest today, a psychiatrist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, argues in his new book that mental illnesses are really just metabolic disorders of the brain, on the spectrum with conditions like diabetes, thyroid disorders, or gastrointestinal inflammation, and that our siloing of conditions into purely mental or physical is counterproductive. Christopher Palmer is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and on the faculty at McLean Hospital in Boston, where he sees patients and is involved in medical education and research. His new book, Brain Energy, makes a case for a new movement into reframing mental illness as metabolic disorders of the brain, which can be treated and improved by numerous treatments beyond our usual array of medications that are at best effective about one-third of the time. In his book, Palmer explains how mental illnesses overlap with each other and physical illnesses, and how cellular mitochondria appear to play a pivotal role in metabolic balance. He includes some case studies of patients he has successfully treated for treatment-resistant mental illness, and issues a call to action for us to join the movement. Dr. Chris Palmer, psychiatrist and author of Brain Energy, is my guest today on Studio Tulsa Medical Monday. Dr. Chris Palmer, welcome to Medical Monday. I'd like to start by having you explain your thesis in brain energy, which is that mental illnesses really are metabolic conditions that are, say, no different in the big picture from, say, heart disease. Can you explain how that works?
0: It's a great question. And, you know, up until even today, if you actually ask most leading psychiatrists or neuroscientists, what exactly causes mental illness? The prevailing answer right now is no one knows. Um, it is a big mystery. And all we know are some of the factors that seem to be involved. And these factors you know, usually get lumped into what we call the biopsychosocial model, which says that there are biological, psychological, and social factors that all seem to come together and play a role in the development of a mental illness in different people. And the biological factors include things like neurotransmitters, hormones, genetics, inflammation. But there are psychological and social factors, things like trauma and stress and adverse childhood experiences. But how do all of these things fit together? And how exactly do they end up causing mental illness? The real answer up until now is people haven't been able to put it all together. And what What I believe I have been able to do, and this is just based on decades and decades of research. So in many ways, this is not a new idea. It is a building on decades of research that have all been kind of building to this moment or this revelation. That the only way to understand how all of these different factors lead to mental illness is by seeing the big picture. And the big picture is that mental disorders are, in fact, metabolic disorders of the brain. So in the way that you said it's similar to heart disease, you know, heart disease is a metabolic disorder that's impacting the heart in particular. And what I'm saying is those exact same factors, things like diet and exercise and stress and trauma and relationships, Um, and drug and alcohol use, smoking cigarettes, that all of those things actually can impact the brain as well. And when they primarily impact the brain, it can result in symptoms that we would call a mental illness.
1: One of the points you make in the first part of the book is that there's tremendous overlap in all kinds of mental illness. And characteristically, well, I mean, the Bible of of Psychiatry is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, I, I don't know if we're on five now or five subunit, but DSM as it's known. And that's, that's a taxonomy. It really helps classify various mental illnesses. And these and can be mental illnesses in the setting of what we'd consider physical illnesses or de novo or mental illnesses on their own. But you, you argue very clearly and cogently that there's tremendous overlap in these conditions. And so it's not a big surprise then that it's confusing. They're hard to diagnose. They're certainly hard to treat and require oftentimes talk therapy, medication, usually both are probably better than either one individually. But can you take us through some of the thinking on that? Because it, I think we have this tendency as, as human beings, we like to categorize things. And so we've created this this huge taxonomy of mental disorders, and yet it's sort of like the the emperor's uh, new clothes. You sort of say like, hey, you know, psychiatry, or hey, the, the field that I'm working in. All of these things kind of have a lot of overlap, and they certainly overlap with what we'd consider to be, you know, physical conditions as well.
0: We do. So I want to start with, you know, just the obvious, which is on the surface, DSM makes sense. So DSM gives us diagnostic labels like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder depression, alcoholism, which is called alcohol use disorder, or anorexia nervosa. And even as I say those, everyone kind of gets a clear picture of what those things are. Even if they're not mental health professionals or all that familiar with the mental health field, most people know or at least have a sense of what schizophrenia is. And that's wildly different than an alcoholic. And that's wildly different than somebody who's depressed. And that's wildly different than somebody with anorexia who's starving herself. And so on the surface, DSM makes sense because it describes symptoms and behaviors that help us understand what somebody is experiencing. But more importantly, it helps us understand treatments that might be useful for these different people. And sometimes it can help us understand a life trajectory for these people. The problem with DSM comes when you actually try to implement it in real life. And there are two or three major problems with DSM. And, you know, one of them is something called heterogeneity. Another one is something called comorbidity. And the other one is just a lack of validity of these diagnostic labels. So the first one, heterogeneity, means that if I look at two people with schizophrenia, they can be wildly different from each other. Um, If I look at two people with autism, they can be wildly different from each other. One person with autism might be living in a group home and also have seizures and cognitive impairment and be unable to care for himself. Whereas another person with autism can be a billionaire, famous person, and To imagine that those two people have the exact same diagnosis or brain disorder is actually somewhat almost silly. The other problem, though, is comorbidity, which means that if I look at people with any mental disorder, especially people who are seeking treatment, it turns out that among the people who seek treatment, on average, they have three to four of these different diagnostic labels. And these labels can change over time. So somebody can start with anxiety, and then that turns into anxiety and depression, and then it turns into bipolar, and then it turns into schizophrenia, all in one human being. And this person only has one brain. And so, are we really to think that this person had the unfortunate, you know, uh, life to develop four different independent mental disorders all at once? Not really. And when we look at the comorbidity among the different disorders, you can mix and match them any way you want, which means that if I look at a group of people with schizophrenia, they're more likely to also be depressed and have OCD. But same goes for a group of people with anorexia. They're also more likely to be depressed and have OCD. And same goes for a group of people with personality disorders. They're also more likely to be depressed and have OCD. I think the most important thing is that the validity of these labels. So even though people, everybody knows the word schizophrenia, but it is not a valid diagnosis. It's not a valid disease entity unto itself. And we know that with certainty. And if this really sounds kind of incredible or hard to believe, the National Institute of Health abandoned the DSM diagnoses about a decade ago, recognizing that we're never gonna get anywhere assuming these labels are valid constructs because they're just not. And then even if we look at the risk factors that we know about, for instance, we know some genes, you know, genetics, we know some genes exist that confer risk for mental disorders, but there actually aren't any genes that are specific to any specific disorders. So there aren't schizophrenia genes and depression genes and bipolar genes. Instead, one gene might confer risk for schizophrenia and bipolar and epilepsy and cognitive impairment and other disorders all at the same time. And so, if you really do a deep dive into the science, our diagnostic labels just fall apart and they're really not getting us very far.
1: You're listening to Studio Tulsa. It's Medical Monday. I'm John Schumann. and my guest today is Dr. Chris Palmer who's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He also works at McLean Hospital there and is author of an interesting new book called Brain Energy, which is really a new formulation, if you will, on how to think about mental illnesses as disorders of the brain, really of the brain's metabolism, much more so than sort of spiritual uh, mental disorders uh, that that have characterized psychiatry for generations now. And Chris... A big part of the book is given over to the science, and I want to keep it simple here, but you explain what mitochondria are. And for those of us that maybe stopped at uh, high school biology, remind us what mitochondria are and sort of what they do and why you think that they are important in, well, in all kinds of health, but mental health especially.
0: So most people who have taken high school biology or any other biology classes probably remember mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. And what that means is that they take food and oxygen and they turn it into ATP, which is the energy currency of all living organisms. And in fact, that is correct. All of that's correct. And mitochondria are powerhouses and they are doing all of that. They're generating all of this energy for the cell. But in fact, over the last 20 years, this area of research is exploding and it is one of the most cutting-edge areas of research in the entire medical field. We now know that mitochondria are so much more than powerhouses. And if you do a deep dive into the science of mitochondria, which I do with people in the book, you actually can start to connect all of the dots that we know play a role in mental illness. So for example, Mitochondria play a role in the production and regulation of neurotransmitters. They also play a role in the production and regulation of key hormones, things like cortisol, estrogen, testosterone. They play a role in inflammation. They even play a role in turning genes on and off. They are actually the single most powerful controller of what we call the genetics. And once you do it, as I said, a broad overview and a deep dive into mitochondria, once and for all, we can connect the dots of mental illness.
1: So, what's interesting is that mitochondria, I guess, dysregulation of mitochondria. And here's one of the trickier things that I think you learn more in college biology or beyond, which is that mitochondria have their own genes. So, they're these organelles, as they're known, they're these small powerhouses of the cell, but they have their own genetics too. And that's thought to be because they evolved as, you know, originally as independent organisms that wound up sort of symbiotically kind of coming into what are known as eukaryotic cells. And I don't want to get too technical here, but that has a, a, a very important role. in I think in how we normally function or how metabolism functions. And when things can go wrong, you frame this very well, things like overproduction or overexcitation or inhibition or, or a lack of function. Can you kind of give us a, a window into that model? Exactly.
0: So the the overarching model of mental illness that I have is, I think first, I distinguish and I think it's critical that we distinguish between normal human emotions in response to human experiences and mental illness or a mental disorder. Because I do not think they are the same thing. Unfortunately, right now, DSM doesn't necessarily distinguish them. And what I mean by that is that everybody gets depressed at some point or another. Everybody gets anxious. And if you are experiencing extreme adversity in your life, you just got dumped by the love of your life, or you're homeless, or your country is at war, and your city is being bombed, on a daily basis, guess what? You're going to have some symptoms. You're going to have some depression or anxiety or post-traumatic symptoms. And I do not believe we should be calling those disorders of the brain because they are not disorders of the brain. Your brain is working perfectly normally. All of those are normal human responses to adversity. But I do believe mental disorders are real. And what that means is that those same functions either become overactive or inappropriately active or they are underactive or they are completely absent. And when brain functions are overactive, underactive or absent, I would call those scenarios symptoms of a brain disorder or a mental disorder. And let me, maybe if I give you one or two examples. Sure. So an example of an overactive brain function that would be a mental disorder. You know, anxiety disorders are the most common disorders. So everybody gets anxious. If a wild animal is chasing you, you're going to be anxious. If your boss yells at you, you're going to be anxious. That's not a disorder. But if you're sitting on the sofa just watching TV and and it's a nice show, it's actually, you know, nothing alarming or stimulating and out of the blue you get a panic attack for no reason that is your brain being overactive the anxiety pathways in your brain are turning on for some unclear reason and that is a disorder and if that happens often enough you would get diagnosed with panic disorder or an anxiety disorder Underactive brain functions might be somebody with ADHD not being able to focus and concentrate um, or somebody with ADHD not being able to sit still. Those are things that people's brains should allow them to do. People with ADHD seem to have underactivity of those brain regions, and then people aren't able to do those things. Absent brain functions might be somebody with Alzheimer's disease who has lost brain tissue or brain cells. And they really just cannot remember things because the cells that used to store memories um, or at least aid in that process are absent or, you know, dead. And so that person would also have what we would call a mental disorder.
1: You're listening to Studio Tulsa. It's Medical Monday. I'm John Schumann. My guest today is Chris Palmer, who is a psychiatrist at McLean Hospital in Boston. He's also an assistant professor at Harvard's Medical School. He's author of the new book, Brain Energy. And if you want to learn more about it, you can go to his website, brainenergy.com, where Chris Palmer is trying to spur a movement of all of us to really get behind the idea that uh, mental illnesses really are just metabolic disorders of the brain and brain energy and thinking about it in a new way. And the book is really uh, an enjoyable kind of explanation of this model. And Chris, one thing that I noticed that was reassuring to me, and I guess if anyone listening to this this show, you know, is perhaps a little bit overwhelmed by the science. We've talked about mitochondria and specific psychiatric conditions. I think one overriding message that you provide is that the diathesis or tendency toward mental illnesses, just like for physical illnesses, can come from a number of risk factors. And you mentioned, of course, there's genetics or epigenetics, but there's also trauma or adverse childhood experiences or what we now call social determinants of health, where people live, uh, work, and uh, interact with other humans. We're a social species. We need to be with other humans. And so you point out that, and the good news on all of this is, you can optimize your health in so many ways, but uh, specifically here in the case of mental health, by getting enough sleep, by making sure your nutrition is adequate and uh, multifaceted, that you get exercise regularly, that you're exposed to daylight for your circadian rhythms, and that Most of all, and, you know, all of us struggle to do this, but find a purpose in in social engagement. And so I think one of the takeaways from the book is that if you're able to sort of adopt these healthier lifestyles and refrain from things like tobacco and alcohol and drug use, you're much more likely to be better off. You have some great success stories. Um, For example, there is the case of Mildred in the book. Um, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing Mildred's story of kind of her condition and how things turned around for her because it was a pretty heartwarming story.
0: Yeah. Mildred actually gave me, I changed everybody's name in the book, but she actually gave me permission to use her real name. And you'll understand why I want to do that in just a little bit. So I'm going to use her real name. Her real name is Doris. Doris was, you know, when she was a girl, she had horrible childhood, suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and depression by the time she was 17, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia. She began having daily hallucinations and delusions over the ensuing decades. She tried numerous antipsychotic and mood stabilizing medications, but none of them stopped her symptoms. Doris was tormented by her illness. Between the ages of 68 and 70, she tried to kill herself at least six times and was hospitalized for most of the suicide attempts. She had gained a tremendous amount of weight from all of the years of psychiatric medications. And she had a court-appointed guardian. And she had a team of people who came into her home and helped her with paying bills and grocery shopping and stuff like that. In every way, she had schizophrenia. And for whatever reason, at the age of 70, her doctor referred her to a weight loss clinic at Duke University. And she decided to give it a try. And they were using the ketogenic diet as a weight loss intervention. Within two weeks, not only did Doris begin losing weight, but she began to notice dramatic and significant reductions in her auditory hallucinations. Within months, all of her symptoms of schizophrenia were in full and complete remission. And within six months, she was able to get off all her psychiatric medications and stay in full and complete remission from her schizophrenia. Doris went on to live for another 15 years. She remained symptom-free, medication-free, out of psychiatric hospitals, no more suicide attempts, no more mental health professionals. For anybody familiar with the mental health field and the diagnosis of schizophrenia, you know this does not happen. This does not happen with the best treatment that we have to offer today. Doris had an entirely new life for 15 more years because of a diet. And oh, she went on to lose 150 pounds and keep it off too. That, so the weight loss thing worked out too. Um, very sadly, Doris passed away this past January of COVID
1: pneumonia. But it's, it really is an incredible story because y- you don't often see cures that complete for people who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia or schizophrenia-like illnesses. And so, you know, you, it sounds like you gave her an incredible new lease on life. I guess one thing I'm interested about you personally, it's, it sounds like you have a specialty in treatment-resistant mental illness. How did you develop that? And I guess how did your career sort of take that shape?
0: You know, that's probably more a function of where I trained and where I work. So, you know, I work at McLean Hospital, which is the largest psychiatric hospital in the Harvard system. We're currently ranked number one in psychiatry by U.S. News and World Report. And as such, we are a tertiary care hospital, which means, you know, and especially for me in my practice, I never ever get to see patients who have their first episode of depression or anxiety or whatever and treat them. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, <laughs> instead, I get I get the patients who have already been in and out of hospitals. They've seen numerous mental health professionals. They've usually tried, you know, at least 10 different psychiatric medications, sometimes over 30 psychiatric medications. Many of the patients I've seen have had electroconvulsive therapy or transcranial magnetic stimulation, or ketamine injections, or whatever. And then they come to me and say, can you help me? And so uh, that is what treatment-resistant is all about. Um, and that is where I've focused my career, um, is tr- you know, kind of trying to understand how we can do better when our standard treatments aren't
1: working. Question about McLean. So you have still an inpatient unit, although I know across the country, we've uh, deinstitutionalized lots of patients with chronic mental illness and gotten rid of beds in mental institutions. But that said, McLean being uh, a a well-known place uh, still has an inpatient unit. Is the nutrition there sort of tailored to sort of adapt to the to sort of the brain energy model? And I don't mean specifically a ketogenic diet, but do you do specific things with regard to nutrition? Or is it more of just like a conventional hospital diet or, you know, different strokes for different folks?
0: Yeah, right now it's a conventional hospital. I am one of numerous professionals at McLean Hospital. So although I am passionate about using dietary and other lifestyle interventions to help people with mental illness um, recover, I don't run McLean Hospital (laughs) and um, I've I've tried uh, to get dietary services to change. And we've done some studies actually at McLean Hospital, where dietary services has been extraordinarily helpful and cooperative and invaluable Um, team members with our research studies helping provide specialized diets like the ketogenic diet for patients participating in research studies. But um, unfortunately uh, right now, hospitals, you know, especially mental hospitals are stretched thin you know we as an institution are losing money still be it's you know it started with the pandemic and we have still not gotten back to break even but even before the pandemic mental hospitals are grossly underfunded let me just say that again mental health services are grossly underfunded and so We need bigger changes to really get hospitals like McLean and others to be able to even afford um, better quality meals as part of dietary services. Because the reality is a box of mac and cheese is cheap. Um, Fresh meat or fish with fresh vegetables um, is a lot more expensive than a box of macaroni and cheese. And uh, so... We've got a long way to go before we're going to see major
1: changes like that. It sounds like a uh, you know great opportunity, though. I mean, in the perhaps longer run, but you know, sad to understand, of course, about the financial situation. But it speaks to kind of the whole financial situation of how healthcare is reimbursed, anyway, and the sort of siloization and atomization, really, of you know mental health conditions separately from physical health conditions. And if you know, probably the biggest takeaway for me from the book. Uh, is a, is a, the fact that, you know, just thinking of mental disorders on this spectrum of metabolic illnesses, which is in fact k- kind of the etiology of really every illness. Well, the name of the book is Brain Energy, and you can learn more about it by going to the website brainenergy.com. And it's by my guest today, Dr. Chris Palmer, who is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Chris Palmer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John, for having me. Chris Palmer is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, where he's on the faculty at McLean Hospital. His new book is Brain Energy. Well, that's our show for this Medical Monday. Studio Tulsa is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of KWGS or the University of Tulsa. For Studio Tulsa, I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. Thanks for listening and please stay safe out there.